for that wonderful song in your Bible. If you would join me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read verse 18, beginning in verse 18 down to through chapter 2, verse 12. This is the Christmas story in Matthew's record. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, or in these as follows, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Verse 21, if you'd read with me. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. goes on to say, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou Bethlehem and the land of Judah art not least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. When ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which went, they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. <clears throat> Verse 10, And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with his mother, with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Father, your word before us is heaven's truth on earth, and we are so thankful for the glorious truth of Christmas. I pray as we navigate through this great passage this morning that you would open our hearts up to the divine truth that is unfolded in Matthew's gospel. I pray that you would give light and understanding to each one that hears today. Give us ears to hear, and may we grasp the weightiness of this exalted truth, that if anyone today doesn't know Christ, today would be the day of salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. you may be seated. It was 2,000 years ago, the single greatest 
and most miraculous birth in human history happened when Jesus Christ was born into this world. Christmas is the season that we have come to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, the creator of heaven and earth entered a human body. The one whose presence fills heaven and heaven of heavens now contained inside of this human form. The humility of the birth of Christ is really staggering. If Christ had come down as the king and regent of the earth, would have been humbling enough in a human form. But to then inhabit that baby and to live the normal process of life is unthinkable. The obscurity of the life of Christ is really a remarkable thing. If Jesus was not God in flesh, we would not be talking about him today. Consider the following. He was born in Bethlehem which is just a small, obscure village with a few thousand people in that day, and today only contains about 25,000 people. It's about the size of Xenia's population today, but only had about 3,000 in that day. He was a child of a peasant woman. He grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was an obscure village, nothing well-known at all. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was around 30 years of age. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office, never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials except for himself. When he was 33 years old, public opinion went against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through a mock trial and was crucified between two thieves. And then they used a borrowed tomb out of pity from a friend. And of all the kings, all the regents, all the presidents, all the great authors, orators, singers, philanthropists, no one has ever impacted the world more than this man, Jesus Christ. God entered the world, and if he entered the world in a human form, you would expect him to impact the world, and that fact is unquestionable. The noted historian Kenneth Scott Lauderette said, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet, and that influence appears to be growing. Historian H.G. Wells was asked which person left the most permanent impression on history. He replied, judging a person's greatness by historical standards, by that test, he said, Jesus stands first. I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in history. There is a reason why the Encyclopedia Britannica gives more room in its documentation on the person of Jesus Christ than anyone who has ever lived. Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor of the French who dominated most of the world in that day, wrote, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. I search in vain history to find similar to Jesus Christ or anything which is a can approach the gospel. 
Neither history, nor humanity, nor ages, nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Listen, Jesus is the most captivating, the most influential person ever to live. He is more studied, more examined, more material has been written about him, more songs have been sung about him, more people have discussed him than any other person that's ever stepped foot on planet Earth. Just yesterday evening after the Steelers beat the Bengals, it's like salt in my mouth, I was encouraged to hear the quarterback Mason Rudolph say, I want to, when he was asked his opinion on the game and what it's like to have success after being off for so long. He said, I want to say I'm thankful to my creator, Jesus Christ, for giving me the opportunity to play the game. I love losing games to guys like that. And after 2,000 years, the interest in the person of Jesus Christ is not lessened. One study showed that 24,900,000 people on a monthly average on Google search engine alone asked the question, so who is Jesus Christ? Name anyone who lived 2,000 years ago that nearly 25 million people around the world are asking that question about. You find no one. Now, for most people in the world's history, the question of who they are really is not that critical. Whether your understanding of them is accurate is not a life and death issue. It could just be a mishap in how you view history if you misunderstand someone. But when it comes to the person of Jesus, the things that he said moves him from the place of being interesting to the category of being critical. Because Jesus said, where you spend forever is based on what you do with him. In John 8, 23, Jesus said this. He said to the people of his day, he said, you are from beneath, I am from above. He said, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Who says stuff like that? I mean, when people say, oh, he's a great teacher, but I don't believe in him as the son of God. Oh, really? That's a lunatic talking like that. If he isn't who he says he was, if he's not who he says he is, then he's crazy. Write him off as a mad person. What do you mean you're not from this world? And then he said this, I said, therefore, unto you that you shall die in your sins. If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Jesus declared that your eternity is based on what you do with him. That moves Jesus from the place of being interesting to now being very critical. And I would have to ask the question, if God ever inhabited a body, wouldn't he be probably the most influential person that ever lived? Why do you think this pitiless preacher from Nazareth is the very center of history declared to be so even by unbelieving historians? Claims of Jesus are monumental. This morning I want to look at who this child is and three responses that we find in our text to him today. And we all fit into one of these categories. So five truths about who this child is. First of all, he is heaven's child. The Bible tells us in Matthew 1 verse 18 through 20 that Mary was a virgin. Virgins don't get pregnant. Mary conceived the baby into her womb as the supernatural act of God. Verse 20, as well as verse 18, says that she conceived that child by the Holy Ghost. 
The same Holy Spirit that births spiritual life into the believer brought physical life into that child in the womb of Mary. Jesus' birth was the will of God. He came into the world from heaven. Jesus did not originate on earth. He had existed for eternity. This was his incarnation, his entrance into the world. Jesus knew this about himself. So he says in John 6, verse 51, he said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. John 6, 62, he says, What if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Jesus declared that he had eternally existed. This is repeated over and over and over by our Lord in the New Testament. Not only is he heaven's child, but secondly, he was the promised child. Notice in verse 22, it says this, Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken, notice the next phrase, of the Lord by who? Now what does that imply? What does that signify? That's letting us know that the Lord is speaking, but he's speaking through his servants, the prophets. So it's not the prophets who originated the message. This is God speaking, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son. Do you know the Bible over 2,000 times in the Old Testament alone claims it is the word of God? I mean, who says that stuff? The Bible thousands of times says this is what the Lord's saying. Thus saith the Lord. The Lord spoke unto me, saying unto you. God said it just constantly says this. I mean, if somebody wrote you a letter and said, God told me to tell you this, you'd be like, you're messed up, dude. Right? You're like, you drank too much NyQuil. Or something is off. Right? Sniffing Clorox or what? I mean, God did not tell you to say that. You know, and people who say stuff like that are off. You have, to, you have to ask yourself, why did they say that? They believed what they were writing were the words of God. You say, other books claim that divine inspiration. That's true. The Quran claims divine inspiration. The book of Mor- the, the Muslim's book, Islam's book. The Book of Mormon claims it is a divine book. The Vedas, the Buddhist and Hindu writings... But none of these books contain predictive prophecies, none of them, as the Bible. Fulfilled prophecy is the indication of the unique divine authority of Scripture. God declares in His holy word that it is, in fact, prophetic pronouncements that separate Him from all the false gods. In Isaiah 46, 9, it says, Remember the former things of old. I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. What separates you, God, from the false gods of the world or others who claim to be God? He says, Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. You need to understand that there have, has never been a human being whose birth into the world was prophesied of years and hundreds of years before they were born. People say stuff like this. Well, there's a lot of religions in the world. How do you know which one's right? I asked that question many years ago. I studied it out, and now I am 100%, 110% persuaded of the errors 
of these other religions, and I know why I don't believe them. I've studied it out. I know why. I know where their errors are. I know why I'm not a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu. I know why factually they're so wrong. I know why I'm a Christian. It is rational. The most rational decision I ever made in my life was to become a Christian. I never used more logic than when I got saved. It's the most logical thing in the world for me. You walk outside and it's called the duh effect, isn't it? You look up and it's like, who created everything? Did it come from nothing? Duh. Like, somebody made this, right? So, you know, you don't have an earth spinning 580 million miles in orbit at 1,000 miles per hour, spinning at 1,000 miles per hour at 23 degree tilt just perfectly with the moon directly distanced from our earth. And it's 400 times as far away from the uh, sun as it is. Uh, it's 400 times smaller than the sun. So it makes a perfect eclipse. It just had to be the direct perfect dimensions. And all of that's by chance. Really. So when you look at that and then you say there has to be a God, somebody made that. You don't have a building and you say, I don't think anybody built that. I think a tornado created that. Well, that's insanity. You would think somebody's insane. And the intricacies of your body and creation move it from a place of chance and chance doesn't even exist. What is chance? Chance is not a thing. It's something we refer to when something works itself out, but it doesn't actually exist. Chance didn't create. Evolution turns chance into their God. It doesn't even exist. What a faith is that? That's so illogical to me. Therefore, I believe it has to be person and intellect that we create intellect and person. You know what they've done over the last, I don't know, 20 years especially? They've gone up into space with cameras. And they look down upon the earth from outer space and they're able to see and find places of civilization that they've never found before. You know why? Because when they look down and all the trees and, and growth has taken over those places, they see elevations in this form of squares and circles and they know that creation doesn't do that. That there had to be a designer there that created those shapes. And so they begin to excavate, tear all the trees and the foliage and everything that you couldn't see at a micro, a micro level, but from the macro view, you can see it. And they discover different places that people have built. What that basically shows is whenever there's design, there has to be a duh. That's the duh effect, isn't it? Right? And so when you look at your body and you think, well, I got a, you know, 100 trillion deoxyribonucleic acid going through the 100 trillion uh, cells in my body, and they're more complex than any of the high processing computer systems that we've ever created. How could the DNA be more complex of encoded information than anything that intelligent life on this earth has ever created? How could non-intelligence create decoded or coded information that's greater in magnitude than what intelligence created? That's why it's duh. So you would have to figure out there has to be an infinitely wise creator, infinitely intelligent creator, and that if he created, then he probably wants to interact with us in some way. The agnostics are wrong. God wants us to know him, and he wrote a book that's been written over 40, 40 different human authors 
over 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, Old Testament Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and then Greek in the New Testament. It fits together like a hand in a glove, the most remarkable book that's ever been written. How could you have 40 authors who came from all walks of life? Some were kings, some were peasants, some of them were written on the hillside, some were written in prisons. People say, well, they changed it down through the years so it fit together. The only people who say that betray their ignorance. And I feel sorry for them because they immediately let me know they've never studied it out. It immediately lets me know that. Because any intelligent person, any historian, any scholar that studies it out will let you know they didn't change it down through the years. You can disagree with it. You cannot believe in it. But the fact is, we have 24,000 manuscripts that date back to just years within a few decades after the finishing of the New Testament to validate that what we have is a reflection of what was originally written. In fact, There is more evidence for the reliability of the New Testament as an accurate reflection of what was originally written than any 10 works of antiquity put together. Did you know that? So either you throw out all of ancient writing or you take the Bible. If you were to compare it, the, the, the manuscript evidence is two and a half miles high compared to four feet high to the next group in line of historical writings. So either you get rid of everything or you say, well, we we know what they originally wrote because we have the manuscripts to back it up. So when people say silly things like that, they've just shown themselves to be willingly ignorant. It's like the media who hates Donald Trump and no matter what he does, they're going to take a negative view. The world has taken a negative view of Jesus Christ and no matter what he does, they put him on the negative side. The, the, The bias of the world is so strong against the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not comparing Jesus to Donald Trump, all right? I'm just trying to give you a tangible example that we live with today. So, now it's important to understand that there's never been a human being that had their birth prophesied. This is miraculous, and you need to know this. You know how many prophecies there were of Muhammad's coming? I know. You know how many there were? Zero. There wasn't one prophecy of his coming. You know how many men wrote the Quran? One. 40 authors, 1,500 years, and then there's one guy. There's a lot more I could say about this, but I'll stop. Isaiah 7:14. this is 700 years before Jesus' birth. This is what it says. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given his and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, El Gabor, or the Mighty God. The Everlasting Father, that, that could be translated as the God of eternity, the Father of eternity, and the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the eternal God made flesh. When the wise men ask Herod, where is the child to be born? Herod gets real religious. He's like, get all the scholars, get all the religious leaders. He gathers them all together in Matthew chapter number 2, verse 4. He gathered all the religious guys together. He says, where is Christ to be born? You know what they said? Because they knew Isaiah's prophecy. They knew Micah's prophecy. They said unto him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And in Matthew 2, verse 6, it says, thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And and they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which was written 700 years before this. That's not found in, those are just three of the prophetic verses 
of Jesus' first coming. Do you know there are over 300 prophecies of his first coming? There's a man named Peter Stoner. He was a former chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College in California. That school now has over 26,000 students. And he shows, according to the science of probability, that chance is ruled out by the fact that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. He gives an illustration. He says, if you take just eight of the 300 prophecies of Christ's first coming, he said, and if any one man lived down through the centuries and fulfilled just eight of them, the same likelihood would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros behind it. He said, let me give you an example to show you how insane that is, because most of us are not mathematic mathematicians, right? He said, fill up the state of Texas two feet high with silver dollars, color one of them red, shake that silver dollar into the mix, blindfold a guy, he gets one chance to pull out the silver dollar. The chance of him walking into the state of Texas, reaching down in a two feet deep pile of silver dollars, only one painted red, and pulling out that one red one is the same chance of one in 10 and 17th power. Jesus didn't just fulfill eight, friends. He fulfilled over 300 of his prophecies exactly, he, every one of them. And Stoner, Peter Stoner goes on to say, it is very clear that Jesus Christ is no mere man. He is indeed the Son of God. I would encourage you to do this. Write down Psalms 22. If you're not familiar with it, I'll even pull out your phone, text yourself. Psalms 22. You'll think that that was written after Jesus was crucified. And yet it was written 580 plus years before he was born. In that, in that chapter, crucifixion was not invented. History records it till 400 B.C. by the Medes and Persians. Around three, between 3 and 400 B.C. Hundreds of years before it was even invented, it writes in Psalms 22, And they pierced my hands and my feet. And they parted my garments and cast lots for my vesture. The whole chapter, you're, you're like, did they write? You would, you would think that if you read it to any American, they said, oh, they probably, so did they write that after Jesus was crucified? No, they wrote it nearly 600 years before he was even born. How do they know that? No religious book in the world has that. None. None. So, so you have to ask yourself, what do I do with that information? That's impossible. How do, what do you do? Nostradamus was wrong. He was so vague about 99% of his stuff. Something gets kind of close. They found, they took the top 25 like um, psychics in America. They said 92% of all of their predictions were totally wrong. Eight of them came to pass and they found out just by sheer coincidence. I'll tell you friends, this book is validated by prophetic pronouncement. You don't find this anywhere else. You have to do something with that. The joy for me as a Christian, I'm like, that just continues to validate. I knew Israel would become a nation again. The Bible says in the last days they would become a nation again. They wandered the world for nearly 1900 years. 70 AD, Rome destroyed Jerusalem. The Jews scattered throughout the world. They came back into their own land again in 1948, became a nation again. That is an impossibility if it wasn't for God. I preached on that a few months ago. 
Thirdly, not only is Jesus heaven's child, the promised child, but thirdly, he's a human child. Verse 23 says, and she shall bring forth a son. What's so incredible is this. The second person of the Trinity took on human form. He inhabited a body. Jesus Christ is about two years old by the time we get to Matthew chapter number two. That's why the Bible says they came into the house of the young child. Jesus is not an infant here in Matthew two. He's a little boy around two years old. He was a toddler. I mean, imagine God of the universe is a toddler. He was probably the terrific twos. They were like, you know, I always think about Jesus growing up. You know, you're a sibling. And Mary looks at little James and says, James, why don't you be more like your brother Jesus? Can you imagine? To which James could say, why don't you be more like Jesus? And Jesus would say, I forgive both of you guys. Yeah. <laughs> be gracious. I am, uh, I am, I am humbly amazed by the graciousness of the one who created us. You ever go through pain and you say, boy, I wish somebody understood what I'm going through. Do you know Jesus knows? The Bible says he suffered more than any man. When we were born into the world, here's the key difference between our birth and Jesus' birth. When you were born into the world, you receive everything. You didn't have life, you, gave, you were given life. You were born Kentucky buck nooked, okay? You had nothing. You were clothed, you were fed, you were given shelter, you were given care, you were given provision, you were just constantly given things. When Jesus entered the world, he gave up everything. They set him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. He was born more humbly than any of us. He went through so much. He died on a cross. He died more, he suffered more than any of us will ever suffer on this earth. He took the weight of sin, the pain and the suffering. What a, what a gracious God. He, he understands what it's like to go through sorrow. He wept. He loved. He hungered. He thirsted. He was fatigued. He felt the weakness of the physical body and he felt the pain of death. We don't have a God who doesn't understand what we've gone through. You may go through things nobody else can understand, but Jesus understands. His life also is a perfect example for us to follow. Not only does he teach us right, but he showed us by his own life. He, he gave us the example of love. That's why he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. He, in the argument of his disciples, we're arguing over who's the greatest. Jesus goes and starts washing their feet. The God of the universe washing the feet, stinking feet of some prideful disciples. He taught us to love. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. If the world were like Jesus, it would be heaven on earth, wouldn't it? He said, I've given you an example to follow. He is heaven's child, the promised child, a human child. But fourthly, he is the divine child. Verse 23 is a, moves us from the natural to the supernatural. Everything in verse 23 is supernatural. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. Impossible outside of God, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. The Bible teaches Jesus is God, very God. That's why John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Who is this word? Verse 14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
He is called by his disciples, God. 1 Timothy 3.16 calls him God manifest in the flesh. John 20.28, Thomas fell down before the resurrected Christ and said, My Lord and my God. John 1.3, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. He said in John 14.9, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Colossians 2.9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. John 5.23, Jesus said, All men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Why? Because he's equal to the Father. And you know Jesus accepted worship. Only God is to be worshiped. You remember Jesus rebuked Satan on his third temptation because Satan said, fall down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus said, it is written, worship God and him only. But Jesus received worship. The Magi came and it says in chapter 2 verse 11 that they fell down and worshiped him. The Greek word is proskuneo. It means to take your forehead, put it on the ground and pay reverence and homage. They worshiped him. When Jesus did the miracle at sea, calming the sea, Matthew 14, says, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. When he healed the blind man in John 9, 38, it says, The man came and said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus received worship because he is worthy. He is God. And, and lastly, number five, Jesus is the saving child. The angel from heaven said in Matthew 1, 21, she shall bring forth the son and shall call his name Jesus. It's the Hebrew name Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. The, 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 the phrase a savior is not one who shall be a savior, but born a savior. You know, behind every Christmas gift, behind every smile and laughter, behind all the lights, Behind all the beauty of Christmas, there is a veiled ugliness. You know, there is a great ugly side of Christmas. There is a horrifying side of Christmas. There is a Genesis 3 that caused Christmas to be born. The reason that Jesus came into the world was to save us from our sins. God was manifest in the flesh and he came to save us from the peril of the hopelessness of eternal death and separation because of sin. Sin is the reason. People say, what's the reason for the season? Sin. Sin. Why did he come, sin? Because I messed up. Because I failed. Because I chose to rebel against God in my life. And you did the same. And since Adam and all of our family and fathers and forefathers and generations, we have rebelled against God and sin has polluted the world. Christmas is the rescue mission. It is the life-saving mission of our God to rescue his people. Christmas is saying God is telling the world, I'm giving you a second chance. Paradise lost can be paradise regained in my son. It is God saying, I am merciful. I am gracious. It is the beauty of Christmas. The beauty of Christmas is to understand the ugliness that came to cure. And what is sin? Well, sin according to 1 John 3, 4, is the transgression of God's law. It is to be lawless against God. It is to think and act and speak and to, and, and to behave and live in ways that are in opposition to God. 
I would ask the question, as you examine your own heart, am I a sinner? Have I sinned? Well, the Bible gives us some sins are like the Ten Commandments. One of the commandments says to put God first. Jesus put it this way, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And ask yourself the question, have you always loved God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you always put him first? And the answer to that is no, none of us have. And if you think you have, then you believe you're sinless your whole life. Because whenever you or I have sinned, God wasn't first place in our life or we wouldn't have sinned. So that makes us an idolater. We, we, we idolize something else. We put something in front of God. That's a sin. That's idolatry. One of the commands says, do not lie. Your whole life, you ever told a lie before? Okay. Raise your hand if you ever told a lie. Okay. We're a bunch of fellow liars right here, right? Somebody didn't raise their hand. They just added to it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I saw you. Thought you thought you just going to bypass that one. Just add one more on. What do you call somebody who's lied? Call him a liar, right? We'd be guilty of that. One of the commands is don't take God's name in vain. The word vain means light. What do you mean when you say don't, you know, that person took you lightly? What does that mean when, when you say that? It means that they didn't take you seriously. Taking God's name in vain means you take it in a way that doesn't, it's not serious to you. Oh my, and just throwing his name out. People say they use the word Lord, but they just throw it out. You know, they have a bad hand in a game. They're like, oh, and they say God's name. That's blasphemy. That's so serious. God says, I will not hold them guiltless who take my name in vain. We should, we should think twice about taking his name lightly, right? And uh, it's, it's heavy. The, the opposite of vain is glory. It's, it's kabod. And it's a Hebrew word. Kabod it means weightiness, giving it weight. If you've ever taken God's name in vain, that's called blasphemy. We'd be guilty of that. One last one says, if you look on someone with lust and you've committed adultery already in your heart. Listen, if you and I sin three times a day, which is real easy to do for one year, that's 1,095 cents. Surround that down to a thousand. If you sin a thousand times a year, which is really easy to do, three times a day, that's being gracious. For add up how many years you've lived, how many sins do you think you've committed? And if you stood before God, do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? Romans 3.19 says this, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. Notice what it says, that every mouth may be stopped. And how much of the world? All the world may be found guilty before God. All the world's going to be guilty. Now, if we're found guilty, what's going to happen? Revelation 21 is the last book of the Bible, one of the last chapters of the Bible, and this is what it says at the last judgment. Revelation 21.8 says, But the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and that would include us if we put something before God. And then it says, And all, what's that little word? Liars. Look what it says would happen. Shall have their part. In the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what the Bible says. Now you need to understand that's a reality. That's true. Now some of us like to be in the dark. We don't want to believe that. We, we, we want to reject that. You know, when my child, my oldest, I remember she used to have play with Legos out on the floor. And I'd say, make sure we put them Legos up. And I remember one night, I had to, you know, back then we had a bedroom. You had to walk to the living room to get to the bathroom at night. And I don't know about you, but the order I get, it's a, it becomes a nightly visit there. And so, um, you young bucks, you'll find out about this. Um, you're like, bladder, you know you can work earlier than middle of the night. And so you get up and you travel through the room. And, uh, you know, and, and one thing, when you get up at night, you do not want to wake up. Because the older you get, when you wake up, you stay awake. Y'all with me? It's like, I had a long day. Like, why are you awake? It's one in the morning. 
And you're wide awake. You're like, I might as well just get up and do something, right? So, so you, you're like one eye half open, keep the other closed, travel like you're still sleeping. And I'm coming across the room barefoot. All of a sudden, I came right down on the edge corner. I bet she had stacked that thing perfectly. Like, here's dad's path. A little toddler just knowing, you know, dad will walk right through here. I'll take his foot out. I mean, oh, man, it reverberated. The kinetic pain of it went all the way up my spine. And, uh, you know, but I was walking in the dark, and I thought I was okay because I couldn't see the danger in front of me. Now, that's a silly illustration, but you need to understand, when you don't have the light of Scripture, and what I just talked about, and you don't know that, you don't think about that, You may think you're okay as you walk along, but I can tell you you're not okay. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not a reality. Think everything's rolling fine, but it's not okay. Listen, one day we're going to stand before God and on our own we would be found guilty. Sin leaves us separated from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says... That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. The promises of God through Israel were not given to you. You were strangers of his covenants of promise. And here's the definition of a hopeless life according to the Bible. Having no hope and without God in the world. The Christless, godless life is the hopeless life. It's like the rich man in Luke 16 crying out for a drop of water to cool his tongue because he's tormented in a flame. But no one can come to him. It's like the people who mock the preaching of Noah for 120 years and then they find it raining one day and the water's now up to their waist and they're scratching at the door of the ark not to be able to enter. They're hopeless. People have no idea the desperation that they're in. This is, this is such a 911 emergency that God came down in the flesh lived a sinless life, died a horrific death, rose again from the dead, wrote the most influential book ever been written, and has lived the most influential life so that you could be influenced by that truth. And what will you do with it? You need to see the reality of this. Sadly, people can be blinded to this truth. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the Bible says, Satan blinds the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the gospel would shine in their heart. Satan wants you to be blinded. He wants you to keep your eyes closed. He doesn't want you to listen to this. He wants you to think about other things. He wants you to die and go to hell. He doesn't want you to consider your eternity. He wants to keep your soul. George Orwell one time wrote an essay entitled A Severed Wasp. He said there was a wasp. It landed on my plate, and I had some jam on the plate, and the wasp began to eat the jam. He said, I took my knife, and I cut it in half. He said, the wasp didn't even phase it. It just kept eating the jam, and it trickled out its severed esophagus. And it goes on to say, that's just like the person who's living in this world cut off from God and they're consuming their life and not until they go to fly away do they realize the dreadful thing that's happened to them. Friend, do you understand the seriousness of this? This is, this is not kiddie talk. This is, this is more important 
than if you came into a doctor's office and he said, you have cancer and I need to tell you that if you don't take drastic measures starting now, Talked to a man before church. He said he had gone to the doctor for a routine visit. They went in. They had some things going on, so they examined his heart. They said, we don't know how you're still alive. We cannot in good faith let you leave. You're going to have triple bypass in the morning. You should be dead already. That's how serious life can be. Do you understand? As a loving pastor, there is nothing I could tell you more important than this. You will die one day. You will stand before God. Listen to me. I promise you this will happen. You will give an account of your life. God will know everything you thought, said, or did. And you will have to stand and give an account of all of that. Do you want to be judged for all of your sin? Think you're going to get off. Think your goodness pays for your bad? It doesn't work like that. If your good deeds paid for your bad, Jesus died for nothing. You and I are like a man stranded in the middle of the Pacific with a thousand miles in every direction and we have no way of escape and all we can plead for is that someone would come and rescue us. We're like a stage four cancer patient lying lying on a bed knowing we're going to die. There's nothing we can do to fix ourselves. We need a remedy. We need a cure. We need saved And when the world was without any hope, you understand 2,000 years ago, heaven split open the sky to some shepherds on a hillside in Bethlehem. (laughs) And in Luke 2 verse 10, it says, And the angel said unto them, Fear, and I'm so thankful the next word's there, not. Because if they stopped with fear, that's real bad news. When heaven splits open the sky and says fear, you're hoping there's another word coming. Make sense? Fear not, for behold, the word is this, I, you angelizo, you with great joy. It's the word where we get evangelism from. I evangelize you with great joy. I have great news for you, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, there is a Savior for the lost, hopeless world. Name's Christ Jesus, the Lord. This is the joy. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why He came. And the Bible says there's salvation in no one else but through Jesus Christ, according to Acts 4.12. Now let me, let me close out by asking, how will you respond to this child? There's three responses I want to briefly look at. The first is the wise men. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Who were these guys? It's not a lot in the Bible written about them. It's pretty interesting, though, when you study the book of Daniel, it talks about the Magi and writings of Herodias and other uh, historians. They write about them. Basically, we have found the Magi to be members of the eastern priestly group descendants of a tribe of people originally associated with the Medes, the Medes and Persians, but it was with the Medes. They were skilled in astronomy. They had a great preoccupation with astrology. Uh, They were basically kingmakers. 
The Magi were so powerful that historians tell us that no Persian king was ever appointed as king unless they fulfilled these two requirements. They had to master the scientific and religious discipline of the Magi. <clears throat> and secondly, <clears throat> that person had to be approved by the Magi. In other words, the Magi were the kingmakers. They controlled the crown. Now, how did they know about Jesus? Well, during the Babylonian captivity, when the Jews went to Babylon, there was a man named Daniel that went there with some friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. We know their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, Daniel was placed, according to Daniel 5.11, over the Magi. He must have shared with them these prophecies and the scriptures. And so for hundreds of years, they had been studying over really several hundred years, they had been studying 700 plus years, all of these prophecies. And it led them to the birth of Jesus Christ. And you need to understand, these weren't three guys on camel's back bouncing along. They came up with that because of the three gifts, but that's not what happened. These guys would have come in on Persian steeds. According to historians, there would have been at least a thousand mounted horsemen that came in that day storming into Jerusalem, saying, where's the king? That's why when you read verse 3 and 4, that Herod in all Jerusalem was troubled. It shook the city. The kingmakers had arrived. They're demanding where the king was born, and Herod and his little palace is shaking. And who do these wise men represent? You know who they represent? They represent the people who seek and find God because they search for him through the revealed text. They took scripture and they took it serious and they went to whatever measure they needed to find Jesus. The Bible says of the Bereans in Acts 17, 11, that they were more noble and they searched the scriptures daily. Would your life reflect the wise men? Do you seek God through his word? The wise men represent those who found God because they sought him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all of your heart. Do you represent them? Does your life show a longing for God? They, they valued Christ. They came and worshipped him. They brought him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold representing the divinity of the child, the royalty of the child. Frankincense representing, I should say, his divinity because it was white and his purity. And then the myrrh representing his sacrificial death. Myrrh was anointing oil. They brought him anointing oil for a dead body, basically, at his birth. How do they know that? Let me say that the wise still seek him. If you're wise today, you'll seek him. I, I am shocked at the casualness that people have toward seeking after God. And that brings me to the second group of people who are the J Jewish religious leaders in verse 4 through 6. When they had gathered all the chief priests, he says, where is this Christ to be born? And they said, in Bethlehem. You know who the religious leaders were? They were made up of priests, the high priest, the captain of the temple police. Um, th these were the scribes. They were the moralists. They were the self-righteous. They were the religionists. They, they, they knew the scriptures. They knew about the coming of Messiah. But what's amazing is they would not even travel from Jerusalem, which was only six miles from Bethlehem. They would not even go to see if he was actually born there. They'd been waiting for hundreds of years for Messiah. 
You have Magi who traveled eight to nine hundred miles, Gentiles traveling that far to come and worship Christ, and they would not even travel six miles to find out if it's true. That is so reflective of the American heart, isn't it? Hey, do you believe in Jesus? Ah, I don't know. Man, if you believe heaven and hell is real, maybe. Well, if you stood before God, do you think you'd make it? Like, what would you say to God? I don't know. I don't really think about it. You think you ever should think about it? You think uh, you walk outside and you're like, duh, there's got to be a God. And it's like, maybe he wrote a book to us. Maybe it would be worth picking up the most influential book that's ever been written. The more prophecies, if there's 300 prophecies about his first coming, do you know there's eight times more prophecies about his second coming? Don't you think it would be worth finding out something about him? Would it be worth to find out is Jesus who he said he was? Would it be worth opening up the gospel of John and saying, let me see if this is real? But no, it's, it's not even worth the six-mile walk. I mean, it's not even worth five minutes of my life to find out if it's true. It is amazing to me. And so people stay in the dark and they step and hope they keep going and they're knocking on wood as they go through life like some fool. Oh, if I knock on wood, maybe that'll keep me safe. Maybe when I get to heaven, knock on wood, maybe I'll be able to get in. Boy, that's a real wise way to live. Well, that's really intelligent. Hey, you got stage four cancer. Well, knock on wood. Maybe I'll get better. Hey, you, I think you got some lung disease coming. You better stop smoking. Well, knock on wood. Maybe it'll go away. I mean, you would say, you're an idiot. You're a fool. Wake up. And you say, man, you're being pretty intense about this because it's that big a deal. It's amazing to me. Think about you. Think about yourself right now. You will have spent more time watching Jeopardy you, you will spend more time on Facebook in one day. You will watch more commercial time in one day than you will in the Bible sometimes for the whole year. You talk about taking him in vain. You treat God as less than commercials. God, you're so unworth my time. Would this service get over, man? Right? Six miles, it's not worth it. Not even worth it. Is that you? can tell you, if you treat him like that, he, you will never be given the light. God will not show you the truth if you treat him like that. Matthew 13, 11, he says to his disciples, they, he said, why do you keep talking to people in such difficult stories, these parables? Jesus said, because it's given to you to know the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not given. Because they seeing will not see and they hearing will not hear. They don't want my truth, I won't let them have it. God doesn't let you treat him cheaply. When you love him and you desire his truth, he will reveal his truth to you. But if you treat him as not worthy, you treat him light, you cannot take him in vain in your heart and him honor you with his truth. It won't happen. But if you come today and you say, God, forgive me. I'm a beggar in need of bread and I didn't understand it. I was in the dark. I was like a fool, like a blind man, and I didn't realize it. Forgive me of my pride. Forgive me of my arrogance. Open my eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law. You are the son of God. I must be saved. There was a Muslim the other day that was blaspheming Jesus and the Jewish people, and he died on the spot. You see that? God is who he will not be mocked. And he is so gracious that he's allowed me and you to mock him throughout our life so many times, and he lets us live. He is so merciful to us. And, and you know who the last man is, and we just wrap this up. 
is King Herod. King Herod. You know who Herod represents? Herod, who was a great builder. Herod, who was the king. Herod, who was so famous and well-known. When they came and said, hey, there's a king born. You know, Herod was like so fearful to lose his power that he killed three of his own sons and murdered his wife because he was afraid he was going to lose his throne to them. <laughs> then, you have, then you have the kingmakers of the east charging in, saying, where's the king born of the Jews? I mean, Herod is losing his mind, right? That's why he says, go kill. Once they left, he says, go kill every child two years and under. We've got to wipe this baby out. He's terrified, horrified it. You know who Herod represents? He represents the person who says, I'm the king of my life. I call the shots. No one else is going to tread on my court. I'm going to be the God of my life. You know why people don't want to surrender their life and give their life to Jesus Christ and be saved? Because they don't want anybody telling them not to go have sex. They don't want somebody to tell. We had a man leave the service the other week because he says, nobody, no church is going to tell me. And I was just preaching. But he told the people in the foyer, he says, nobody's going to tell me who and how I can have sex. You can live the Lord of your own life. That's your choice. But I can tell you, uh, you may be God while you're alive for yourself, but you won't stand before yourself. Right? You can drive down the highway how you want. Right? Some of you do. But there are laws. There are reasons and boundaries. And there are consequences if you go past that. Just because God has been gracious to preserve you from the imminent pain of his judgment, that's grace. That's why we're here today. That's why we're still living. He's so gracious, so merciful. Listen. Are you the king of your life? When all of us are going to go outside today, sit in a vehicle. There's one driver's seat and several passenger seats. Salvation is this. It's not intellectual. It's not just knowing the information. Salvation is surrendering to God and Christ as king of your life. It's saying, Jesus, you sit on the throne of my life. You sit in the driver's seat. I surrender my life to you. It's not Jesus that saves you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a man. He is the God man. And he's to be God of your life. That's why the Bible says, whosoever shall confess him as Lord shall be saved. You, you give your life to him. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you're willing to repent, turn away from your sin, and turn to Christ. Say no to sin and yes to Jesus. When I got saved, he changed my life. And if you've been saved, he's changed your life. He'll do a work in you so incredible. Today, if you're not saved, would you come and trust in him? Who is this child? This child is the Savior. Hope was born. And today you could go home saved with the light of Christ in your heart. But you've got to be willing to turn your life over to Him. It's the best decision you'll ever make. You're a thousand miles in the Pacific. And the helicopter just showed up. All you do is have to call out to Him. Trust in Him. Repent of your sins. Yeah.